now as he comes and speaks. Move the wrong thing. We're in the middle of an amazing story. It started on the day of Pentecost when something completely unprecedented in history happened. The Spirit came down in power on 120. The disciples of Jesus, his family members, and the apostles. As a result of that amazing event, a crowd gathered, Peter preached, thousands were saved, a church was built in Jerusalem, and we discussed that in an earlier talk. Spectacular things happened across the city for months. Hundreds and hundreds of people were drawn to the faith. And then there was a reaction, a really severe reaction. People began to get very agitated in the city about this new sect that seemed to be rising. And they gathered one of the most prominent and able preachers. His name was Stephen, and they interrogated him. They'd already interrogated the apostles several times. They interrogated Stephen, and he preached to them that Jesus was actually the Messiah. They got so angry with him that on the spur of the moment... The ruling council and everyone else said, right, we've had enough of this. They dragged him literally from their council. They took him out of the city, out through the walls, and they stoned him to death instantaneously without any judicial function whatsoever. There was a guy who was instrumental in this by the name of Paul. His Jewish name is Saul. His Greek name is Paul. It's the same person. We'll call him Paul. And he was really thrilled that they got one of the leaders. And he said to the others, look, let's go around the city. Let's root out these people. Let's get rid of them. So they took their sort of paramilitaries, their officials. They went from place to place. Are you following the Nazarene? Are you following the Nazarene? Right, come with us. Out you go. It's either prison or leave the city. And off they went. Thousands of people dispersed from the city of Jerusalem just in, in the matter of days. The only people who were able to stay were the apostles themselves because they, first they decided to do it and perhaps there was an unwillingness to attack them again because of their status. So the whole of this amazing church was dispersed and we heard as the next talk went on um, that some of the people went north and they went to a place called Samaria nearby started preaching there and an evangelist went and he preached and churches were started there and Jeremy Simpkins told us a bit about that story. So although some great hiatus had happened in Jerusalem, there'd been something happening nearby in Samaria and a new people group, the Samaritans, had started believing in the faith. They were kind of a half-Jewish people. And then Terry told us last week that one of the other really gifted evangelists, Stephen was one, Philip was another, heard an, a, a voice like an angel saying to him, you know, you need to get down on the road going south towards Gaza. And there we heard last week that he met uh, an African man, an Ethiopian, who was an official for the Ethiopian monarch who was sort of very interested in the faith. And he was reading the scriptures. He'd been studying Judaism. And Philip came up to him and amazingly, he said, uh, look, I can explain to you what you're reading. And he led him to Christ. Terry told that story very movingly. Very shortly after that, another remarkable thing happened. This Paul, or Saul, as he was known to the Jews, 
was still on the rampage. He was going around. Everywhere that the, the, the Nazarene sect or the Christians had gone, he was after them. He, he deals with them here and they pop up over there. And so he said, well, we've got to keep suppressing it until we actually put the lid on the whole thing. We've got them out of Jerusalem, but now they seem to be popping up in Samaria. They're, they're popping up. We've heard them popping up in other cities around the place. And so he had a, an official recommendation to go to Damascus up further in the north because he heard that up there they were beginning to pop up and he went up there and his desire was that he put the lid on it there and close the whole thing down um, in prison, any of them, torture them if necessary, uh, force them to recant, come back to Judaism. But he had a vision and an actual resurrection appearance the last resurrection appearance of Jesus before he even got to the city of Damascus. By the time Paul arrived in Damascus, he was a broken man. He realized the one he'd been persecuting through the people was Actually, the Messiah. He was humbled, temporarily lost his sight. He was baptized. And then, have a think about this. He came back to Jerusalem, the city where he rooted out the whole Nazarene movement. He'd gone from house to house and organized to get rid of these people, to persecute them, to get them off the face of the earth, get them out of our holy city, get them out of our temple, get them away from our priests. He went back to the very same city where he had publicly endorsed the execution of the first ever Christian martyr in public outside the city gates, very close to where Jesus was crucified when he was stoned. He went back to the very same place and he said, I was wrong. He's, he's alive. He's the Messiah. He's raised from the dead. I now believe in him. And so angry were some of the people they said, right, we better kill Paul now. So they had to scoot him out of the city very, very quickly. Do you like reading dramatic stories? Well, you don't have to go far. And as soon as Saul was converted, this first persecution faded away. They lost their momentum. And says in Acts 9, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. A lot of suffering. It's not just Stephen who got killed. Other people got killed. People got dislocated. They lost their jobs. There was family conflicts. They had to go to other countries. Kids were separated from their parents. It was a tough, tough time. But Luke says that came to an end temporarily because God gave them a time of peace. 
Now, that's the setting for today's story. And today's story comes back to Peter. Now, he was the leader of the uh, Jerusalem apostles. And his job now, Paul having been taken off the scene and gone off to a city called Tarsus, which was a long way away, they kind of locked him away for a bit because he was too complicated and dangerous and just let him sort himself out and then decide how he was going to minister. But Peter was really the boss of the church. He was the senior apostle. He was still there in Jerusalem. And his job was to look after all these churches. Some of them were in Galilee. Some of them were in Samaria. Some of them were in Judea. Now, Judea basically means the area right the way around the capital city of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the area immediately close to the city. 20, 30, 40 miles away, that sort of distance. Can you imagine that? These are some of the places we are thinking about. You can probably see Galilee to the north, Samaria in the middle, Judea at the uh, lower end. And I want you just to take a note of two places. Uh, They're quite near Jerusalem. Can you see there on the left, Lydda and Joppa. Joppa is a port known as Jaffa today, or Yaffo in Arabic. Now, these were about 20 or 30 miles away from Jerusalem, Peter's headquarter. And these two small towns are the scenes of two incredible events which make our talk and our story today. Two stories that are rarely spoken of when you preach through Acts. They're not the sort of highlights that people pick out but I think are profoundly important. And as we prepared this series, we decided we'd uh, speak on these passages. If you have a Bible, Acts 9 and verse 32. We'll read, first of all, 32 to 35. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda, There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda, that's the town, and Sharon, that's the district by the coast, saw him and turn to the Lord. Now, this really is extraordinary, isn't it? Aeneas probably wasn't a disciple. It doesn't say that he was a believer. But as Peter entered into the town of Lydda, somehow or other he encountered a man, or was led to a man, who'd been bedridden for eight years. Probably the believers themselves were witnessing to him or told Peter about this story, and so he went to see this guy, Aeneas, and immediately he he says these incredible words, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and roll up your mat. Isn't that extraordinary? And then all who lived in the area saw him and turned to the Lord. Now that all means people in all parts of the community. It doesn't mean every individual. It's just a way of speaking. But what it means is that thousands of people came to Christ through one miracle, 
Now, this is a time of peace. This is a time of blessing where the church is increasing in numbers. Do you remember what I said earlier on? That's what what Luke says just in the verse before this passage. This is a time of incredible blessing. And this one healing opened up an incredible story. But it makes me ask an interesting question. How could Peter, how could he just speak these words with such confidence? And as I've been preparing this talk, I've been pondering this. And what I want to say to you is, Peter was on the journey of believing for miracles for 10 years before this event happened. And it started the day that Jesus of Nazareth said to him, Peter, you can stop your fishing, mate, because you're coming with me and you're going to watch what I do. And Peter watched Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons for a number of years. And then one day, Peter and all the others who were gathered with him were told by Jesus, now it's your turn. And you're going to start praying for the sick. And he said, well, are you going to be with us? And Jesus said, no, I'm not. Actually, you're going off on your own, two by two. Quaking in the boots, trying it out. They found out that they could actually pray for miracles. And God had given them supernatural power. They came back later on, there's 72 of them by then. And they said, Lord, it's incredible. Even the demons are subject to us. They got really, really excited. And Jesus said, look, don't get excited about that. That's not the real deal. The most important thing is your name is written in the book of heaven. These are just signs. But you're going to do some signs because you're apostles and you're going to show signs that are going to open the door for other people in the future so that they can come into the kingdom. And so Peter experienced all those things and he's the uh, one of only three people who could have been present on the three occasions when Jesus raised people from the dead. Peter, James and John are the only three people who could have been present on all three occasions. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus and time does not permit to go into those stories, but Peter saw them all. And so when it came to his turn on the day of Pentecost and afterwards, and he saw a lame beggar who'd actually been lame from birth out there in the temple, calling out to him for money, suddenly something rose up within him and he said, it's time to raise, pick up your mat, let's go. And, and the guy just raised up and, and, and was healed. And Peter got such a reputation in Jerusalem that when they gathered in the temple, the believers gathered in the temple, Peter would be watching from where, people would be watching from where Peter came from his house to go to the temple because they felt he had such magical powers that even if his shadow was cast upon them, the sick person who they put in their mat, they would be healed. Peter had been on a journey believing for healing. And so it was in Lydda that this Aeneas was healed and many, many people believed in Christ as a result of that one event. Now, meanwhile, down the road in Joppa, some 8 or 10 or 12 miles away, down by the coast just south of modern-day Tel Aviv, if you know Israel, just a lovely little town. You can visit it today. I've been there on a number of occasions. It's a beautiful little place called Joppa, or Jaffa, as it's called today. There was a a believing group there. Now, they heard uh, something, and here comes the second story. Verse 36, let's read it in the Scripture. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good. 
helping the poor. By the way, I knew this was going to happen because I've been thinking about this all week. And God's been speaking to me about it. So I don't apologize for my feelings. About this time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him, urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. <clears throat> when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. <coughs> then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known <coughs> all over Joppa. Many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Is that a moving story? And it appears with uh, Dorcas that she became ill rather suddenly. And what makes me think that is that she was so busy working, making these clothes, that when she died, there was all these numerous garments around in her room or in the place where she was laid that she'd made. She obviously had energy and compassion, and she was known for her care for the poor and the needy. And rather suddenly, it appears, she died, causing a great sadness amongst her friends, and the widows in particular. It's a very, very moving story. Peter had a certain kind of deja vu experience when he went to that room, because he'd been there in the household of Jairus when Peter raised up his 12-year-old daughter, uh, when Jesus raised up um, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, and Peter used a very similar method of prayer an approach that Jesus himself did all those years beforehand. Two very simple stories. Now some reflections. It all seems a long way away from the 21st century. How are we to understand the significance of these events for us today? Let me just say one thing, first of all. Amongst the apostles, the early apostles, one of the greatest gifts that God gave them, Peter being a paramount example, Paul being another, is that they were given supernatural abilities that not everybody had. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. So the Bible tells us that the sign of an apostolic ministry in the New Testament was 
the performing of miracles. One of the key distinguishing factors. And those miracles took, were different types of miracles. We've just spoken of healing miracles. But I wonder whether you could just think about these kind of um, other things that happened for, uh, in the New Testament. Let me just give you a few examples from the book of Acts. Even the story Terry told last week of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch was a kind of miracle of God drawing the impossible connection together of two people who couldn't possibly have met unless the Lord had pushed that circumstance. What about the circumstance when Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi and they were singing and worshipping God and then an earthquake came that was so powerful that the foundations of the whole prison were shaking and all the doors flew open. And immediately the jailer and his household came to faith. That was a kind of sign. Sign. What about the time when Paul was on a ship and they were threatened with shipwreck and an angel spoke to him one night and said, don't worry, everyone's going to survive. You're going to get to Rome. And he said to the whole crew, you'll think you're going to die, but you're not going to die because God's going to tell me we, we might be shipwrecked, but you will live. It was a sign. Healings, of course, were a paramount sign. And they recurred time and time again. Now the point about a sign is that it points to something else. And that's exactly what we see in our story today. The healing of Aeneas was important for Aeneas, obviously. The raising of Dorcas was obviously fundamental to her and her friends and family. But notice the way Luke tells the story. The significance of them is not so much for their own benefit, although that is very, very, very important. But they're a sign. A sign of the coming kingdom, a sign of the need to believe in Christ, which turns out to be the most important thing of all. But here we are in the 21st century, and there appears still to be a great gap between these things and our own experience. So what can we say that bridges that gap in a meaningful way? It says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, of the gifts of the Spirit. So now we're talking about local church, not apostles or very charismatic leaders. We're talking about you and me in a local church. It says that the Spirit will give... Gifts of healing. Now that's interesting. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. It appears that healings will take place in local churches, but it also appears in the early church that this was not a universal experience for Christians by any means. Paul himself, when he was in Galatia, he said, I came and preached to you, Galatians 4, because I was sick. I had to stop here. I couldn't go anywhere else because I was too ill. So I preached to you. He had an associate called Timothy who had frequent illnesses and stomach problems. They just kept coming back. He could never quite get rid of them. And he uh, suggested some medicinal um, methodologies to try and help him. Paul had an associate called Trophimus who while he was traveling around he became so sick that he had to leave him in one town and move on with his party. It appears that there's no kind of situation in the New Testament where everybody gets healed by any means. 
But it is clear that God gives healings to believers as signs of grace. And we've, seen a couple, we've heard a couple of examples today. And he particularly wants to bring about signs of his kingdom in the advance of the kingdom and in the mission of the church to point people to Christ. So how, we've still got a gap though, haven't we? How do we integrate this to our own experience? I asked myself that question in a very searching way this week. Because there are many things in my experience that could say, well, this is another day, but it's not today. I've lost four members of my immediate family prematurely through cancer, including a niece who died this year, at whose graveside I wept a few weeks ago. I have my own wife's situation still unresolved with ME. This week I've been on the phone to a close friend of mine whose wife died suddenly and unexpectedly, aged about 50, leaving a family of four children. I spoke on Skype a couple of weeks ago to a lady in Ukraine that many of you will know, Ludmila Gorbachev, whose husband, Vladimir, sadly died recently. She, in the last few years, has lost her home, her husband, her town, and her church, and her income. And I'm trying to work out how we can support her. There was tears on the Skype, not just hers, but mine. So how do we bridge this gap? God is sovereign. Healing miracles are not an ultimate reality of our existence because the ultimate healing is in eternity and in salvation. But what we have to work, what we have to realize is that our culture and our experience of life can shape us in such a way that we become passive or even cynical about the possibility of God working in supernatural power. And what he's gently doing to us at this stage in our church life is saying that he doesn't want us to be passive and he doesn't want us to be cynical. He wants us to be open. And that includes me. And it also includes you to see what God might do. Some signs are healing miracles, but there are other signs too. I've lost count of the stories I've heard and people I've even spoken to personally who've come to Christ through dreams, especially in some other cultures and in Islamic cultures. It's so remarkable. There are signs that God wants to bring. So as I conclude now, I want to bring three applications of this very, very remarkable story that we've just read today. First of all, the book of Acts contextualizes almost all the miracles in the context of the advancing mission. As the gospel is preached, signs happen. You look all the way through the book of Acts, you find the same pattern, but I haven't got time to go into it now. And what's happening in our What's happening in our nation at the moment in the charismatic church that's really open to these things is that there is a gradual coming together of 
evangelism and praying for miracles. When I started as a Christian, evangelism was more of an intellectual exercise, explaining to people the truth of the faith. And then as we moved along, it became more of a relational exercise. You can't just give concepts to people. You've got to do it out of relationship. And then we realized that we also need to care for the poor and the needs of those disenfranchised as part of our mission. And that's absolutely right. And we are 100% committed to that in this church. But when we read the book of Acts, we see, and we see that, by the way, in the story of Dorcas, <laughs> it's a very, very moving story. She saw what happened in Jerusalem and she did it in Lydda. You know, there's not enough time to tell you the story, but it's just fascinating. But then we've got the concept of the gospel. We've got the relationship with the people. We've got caring for the whole person and meeting the needs of the deprived. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find there's another dimension, which is praying for miraculous things to happen in people's lives. And I think if we put those four together, a robust message strong relationships, concern for the whole person, and then fourthly, and very dynamically, an enhanced belief that God could do actual miracles for them. We're getting something incredibly dynamic. And do you know what? We're moving towards it, inch by inch, step by step. And this morning is an invitation from me, from the elders, from this, the testimonies that have come through what uh, Dave shared, through Terry's leadership and his concern for healing through this series, it's an invitation to you to be active participants. And so I would want to say to you, the second point is really important. It's very, very easy to be cynical. You can turn on the uh, television and watch Christian channels and see... Uh, uh, Rasmataz people who claim healing powers, which may or may not be true, uh, and so you say, we don't want any of that. Well, I would say, don't be reactive against that. Build your theology out of the Bible, not out of God television or anything else. And if you build it out of the Bible, you'll get a very robust view that God wants to work dynamically and powerfully, and you'll see it in, rooted in the book of Acts. And by the way, the book of Acts was written by a doctor, an academic who practiced medicine. And he continued practicing medicine because he didn't see a divide between these two things, but he had no hesitation in saying God works supernaturally above the medicine. So why should we see a conflict there? We have to fight cynicism and disappointment. I've had many circumstances in my life that have challenged my faith in this area. I've just given you one or two examples. I could give you many more, and you've had them too. If we could be open to the Holy Spirit at this time in our church's life, who knows what could happen? Who knows? So I'm inviting you to be very much on the front foot. And in particular, how about doing things that, like what Ian did with the lady in work? How about for some of us, asking for gifts of healing 
just like we ask for gifts of prophecy. They're there in 1 Corinthians 12. There are many people who exercise gifts of prophecy in this church. There are a number of people who exercise the gift of tongues and interpretation, but very often in charismatic churches, those are the only gifts we talk about. But let me put a strong case to you today, biblically. The Spirit gives gifts of healing. Can we be any clearer than that? Does he give them to everyone? No. Not equally, because the gifts are given according to the will of the Spirit. But we can ask, and we can be open. And we can also decide that praying with faith for healing is not just the job of leaders or just the job of Terry, who primarily is advancing this cause in our church, but it's actually the body of Christ together. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a whole network of people in the church who feel called to pray for gifts of healing and meet together occasionally just to stir each other up, like we might do with a group of prophets, like we might do with our musicians who are called to service in music. These are things that could happen. They're foreseeable, folks. One last story, and then we'll stand in a moment. I'm not going to make an altar call today, but I'm appealing to your heart. I'm appealing to you to be ready to be used by God in ways that you may not have anticipated, even if you've had real knocks and difficulties in this area in your own life, as I have had. It doesn't put me off because the number one criteria must be moving towards the biblical norm for the church and we're inching our way towards it. We've got some way to go, but we're heading in the right direction. One final story. Many years ago, when I was thinking about this issue in the church, I cast around the nation. I thought, who could I invite to the church just to talk about healing from the point of view of someone not related to us in any network, who's not a leader, hasn't got any axe to grind, isn't a big charismatic personality, just an ordinary Joe Bloggs kind of person. And those, those were the days when uh, Reinhard Bonnke, who many of you know, was uh, very active in doing sessions here in the UK as well as in Africa. And I used to go to his things from time to time. Anyway, I heard a story that a, a lady had been to a rally he'd had in uh, Birmingham many years ago who was uh, crippled in a wheelchair, had been in a wheelchair for some years, an elderly lady. Her name was Jean Neal. And I saw the video, the fact that Reinhard Bonker prayed for her and she got up out of the wheelchair and she ran around the stadium. Now, of course, if you're a cynic, you think, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's media hype and everything. So I thought, well, rather than be a cynic, I'll phone her up. So I phoned her up and I said, look, Jean, just tell me the story. She told me the story. Then I said, would you like to come and speak in the church? She came with her husband. She was as ordinary a Joe, or shall I say Josephine Bloggs, as anyone could be. And she came and she just told the story about how one day this ordinary old lady who was condemned to this wheelchair for the rest of her life went to hear Reinhard Bonnke, reached out in faith, and ended up healed. It happens today. Some people like to hype things up. We don't believe in hyping things up in this church. But neither do we believe in dumbing down what's really happening.
which is why we tell stories, but we never like to exaggerate them or say that it happens to everyone. But things are happening. And it's the environment of faith that cultivates these things. And that's what they had in Acts 9. That was the context. A great move of faith which stirs up the miraculous. And that's what we lack in our nation. But that's what we're building in our church. And so I'm inviting you today to be on this journey with us and open up to the fact that you, perhaps even you, might be used to pray for signs and miracles of the kingdom for unbelievers around. It's probably you rather than the person sitting next to you that God is speaking to you, by the way. So don't think of them. Think of yourself. Don't disqualify you by yourself by age, gender, experience, education, or whether you've been in this church a long time or not. Let's stand together. We're nearly finished. Let's have the musicians. No altar call. That's an invitation in your heart to say, Lord, you can do these kind of things. in our church and in our town. I'd like you to play through whichever song you're going to sing, but don't sing it. Okay, folks. Should we pray? Father, we thank you for you, a great God. We thank you that the most important thing of all is that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We thank you that only in eternity will we understand the mysteries of suffering, tragedy, life and death. We know you don't insulate us against these things, but Lord, we know that you love to bless your church with signs of grace and healing. And Lord, we know you love this world enough to equip us with the ability to see miracles break out in people's lives. And Father, today as a church, we just want to move one step in that direction by just declaring our availability to be used. So help us, Lord, on this journey, we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.